Good evening, Dharma brothers and sisters. It's kind of new and interesting to be sitting here talking to you. I'm happy to be doing it, actually, in spite of also being nervous. I am also sharing with students in the writing workshop the feelings that you may have had as before you read something. So I know how it feels. So I wanted to tell you what we do in, our, in the Zen tradition at the beginning of a lecture, because it's kind of a funny thing. We have a chant that everybody chants together, but you don't know it, so I'll just say it without you. But in the, in the hall at Green Gulch or San Francisco Zen Center, everybody who comes in before the lecture begins, everybody chants together the following chant. An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. And then I talk. <laughs> or whoever is giving the lecture talks. I used to think at the beginning, wow, that's pretty boastful. Even in a hundred thousand million kelpas? So now I actually really appreciate that. Um, I'm saying it to you now because um, it, it's so out of line that it's actually kind of a humble thing to say. It's so impossible to achieve that um, it's kind of like the vows, the precepts, vowing to, I vow to save all sen sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them. It's in a similar vein. So it's a statement of intention and it's also a, a kind of a wonderful statement of respect for all of our efforts. Whoever is speaking is making their best effort. And if they're making their best effort, then what they're saying is perfect. And it is the Dharma, and it is one moment in a hundred thousand million kalpas, whatever moment it is. So um, it's, it's just kind of a lovely way to bring humility in backwards and to be grateful for each moment that we have together. So I really appreciated the other talks, and um, thank you, three teachers so much. Um, I also am going to speak uh, from a personal perspective. Um, I, I like to do that because, not because I am any more important than anybody else, but because what we're exploring is really what does it mean to be a human being? And I'm using myself as an example because I'm really the only example I've got that I'm very familiar with. So that's why I use myself. I want to talk particularly um, tonight about longing, which I think connects a lot to creativity and to practice 
and to my life. And I think each of us has, has a kind of thread in our lives or a search that, or some, or as Wes said, maybe we come out of a wound. And for me, there's a, a longing that I've lived with all my life since childhood that is what drives me in a way. Um, sometimes it seems like loneliness is another word for the feeling of just a longing to connect. And um, when I was a child, I, I just, I really couldn't understand how it was that I was, my consciousness was inside of my body in what Zen masters called this bag of skin. Why was I contained inside this bag of skin? Why couldn't I get out? Or why wasn't there anybody else inside here with me? And um, it was so lonely in here. So it's, and, and it was, was a confusing thing. I couldn't really, I still don't understand it. How is it that each of us has a point of view inside of our own heads? And we can't get inside of each other's heads, really, but we can merge at different times in different ways. But what we can do is go from our small self into our big self. And we get, get from our small self to our big self and to our Buddha nature. Um, and that is the, the journey, but it continues to be a journey full of longing. When I was a child, I, I, my family went to Martha's Vineyard in the summer. I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I had a very fortunate childhood, very loving parents, progressive, wonderful people um, who I loved dearly. But um, they were unhappy, they were depressed, their marriage was not very good. There was a lot of sadness in my life in spite of all the good fortune I had. And in, in the summers um, when I was a child, I, didn't, I had two little sisters and I had a little brother, but he wasn't born until I was 13, so he wasn't even around when I was really going through my early lonelinesses. And in the place where we went, um, I found this place that I called my secret place, and it was this place in the bayberry bushes that I discovered where I could push through some scratchy bushes and find this clearing. It was about the size of a, a normal room. And it was just a beautiful place on the flank of a hill, and there was a pond there um, called Manemsha Pond. And I could, the bayberry bushes were pretty tall. There were no trees around there, but there were these bushes. And so they were taller than I was, and I couldn't be seen from this little clearing. And I could look out over the pond and watch the sailboats on the pond and the blue water and the sand dunes across the pond. It was incredibly beautiful. And I was seven, eight, nine in those summers. And I knew it was beautiful, and I experienced it as beautiful. And I also experienced it as so sad. I couldn't bear it, especially at the end of the day, there would be this... Um, I don't know, Weltschmerz or something that would come over me as the sun was going down or the shadows were getting really long and I would go to my secret place and try to find some connection and, and uh, 
my parents would be in the house. My mother would be trying to keep my sisters and me out of my father's hair. He would be having a headache. He would be trying to write something. It was, um, but it was so beautiful too. And the sailboats would be sailing and the seagulls would be floating. And, um, and I just didn't know how to hold it. And I kind of went there to be sad, I think, without naming it that. And, trying to find some connection and feeling this, this separation, the, the pain of the separate self. How do I get out of this separate self? And, and I made plans there and I turned cartwheels and I practiced handstands and I planned this Robin Hood club that I was going to start when we got back to school, to town. And um, so, you know, I had I had ideas about how I was going to fix things. But of course, I never started a Robin Hood club, but I, I spent a lot of time practicing with a stick that I pretended was my cudgel. And I was going to bring justice to the world by being like little John and using my cudgel. And, but really, I, I was, um, <laughs> I was uh, just exploring what it means to be separate there and trying to understand it. And I'm still doing it. So, uh, I think Wes was also saying that, that we don't change that much. We keep these, we keep our character perhaps, or our, some, some part of ourselves just stays with us. And I have come to feel that this, longing is a gift, you know, it is who I am and it is what, how I work in the world. And um, I'm trying to learn to understand that in some sense, longing is its own satisfaction. It is what it is and it's, it's kind of finished already. Um, there's not, there's not a, any other end to it, but what it is already somehow for me. Sometimes it, it seems much more prosaic. It could be loneliness, feeling lonesome because I don't have a partner at a t certain time in my life or whatever. But, but really, it's a much deeper feeling than that, I think, that um, it goes beyond whether one's marital status, for example. Um, and, in, and it has to do with this, this thing I was saying before about the consciousness being, my consciousness just being inside my head and me being alone in this body. But there was one exception to that in my life, which are two exceptions, which was about being alone in my body, which is interesting, which was when I was pregnant. And one of the things I liked about being pregnant was that I wasn't alone in my body. <laughs> What, a, what an amazing thing. There is somebody else sharing my body with me. Wow. So um, I think that has something to do actually with after, after each of my children were born, just in the very first time, there's a way of, there was a, a connection when they were outside the womb, they were still almost part of me. I mean, gradually they get further and further and further away. Now they're really far away. But um, there are these, these 
little bending places where we aren't as separate, as different. And there are other ways that you have all probably experienced where, where you can fall madly in love and really know that you're not separate and read each other's minds every second of the time. And so there are moments. But um, generally speaking, <laughs> we're kind of separate. <laughs> There are those moments when you, you can't even tell whose stomach is grumbling. Is it mine or my, my lover's? But most of the time you can tell whether it's your stomach or not. So um, I wanted to read you this a poem by Ryokan, who is one of my favorites and who writes a lot about loneliness and longing. Alone, wandering through the mountains, I come across an abandoned hermitage. The walls have crumbled, and there is only a path for foxes and rabbits. The well, next to an ancient bamboo grove, is dry. Spiderwebs cover a forgotten book of poems that lies beneath a window. Dust is piled on the floor. The stairway is completely hidden by the wild fall grasses. Crickets, disturbed by my unexpected visit, shriek. Looking up, I see the setting sun, unbearable loneliness. I'm so well taken care of. Wes poured me a glass of water that's on this side of me, and Anna poured me a glass of water that's on this side of me. <laughs> Luckily, Miami didn't pour me a glass of water, too, because I, there wouldn't have been a place to put it. So I love that poem because he's talking about unbearable loneliness and he's looking at this empty hermitage. And, but he's standing there looking at the empty hermitage. There's nobody inside the hermitage, but the poet is standing there telling you the story and there's a book of poems in the hermitage. There's something else going on besides just plain old loneliness. loneliness. You know, he's, He's feeling lonely as he looks at the hermitage, which is a place to go to be alone. So it's really okay somehow. A hermitage is supposed to be lonely, and he's looking at it and, and feeling this kind of longing that I'm talking about, maybe, and noticing the book of poems and writing a poem, which goes into a book of poems in somebody's lonely hermitage somewhere. And sometimes this longing really is a feeling in the body uh, that is like hot prickles. I can feel it in my bloodstream. Uh, I can feel it on my skin, like uh, the hairs are standing on end or something. It's just a, a kind of a vibration of wanting to connect, wanting to know that I'm part of the universe. And it just comes up sometimes so strong. And so I'm learning to say hello to it. Oh, you're my friend. Here comes. Hello, longing. So I think uh, my, my impulse to write and to create and my impulse to practice the Dharma both come from this feeling. And uh, 
the Dharma is just such an amazing way to realize that we have our small self and we have our big self, our Buddha nature, at exactly the same time. And it's one thing. It's not like, well, there, over here is my small self and over here is my big self, my Buddha nature. It's one and the same thing. That's what's so incredible. It's like this, this marriage of two things that are really only one thing, as they say in Zen, not one, not two. It's, it's both. It's one, but it's also two. Um, and and that's, been, that's been really a gift, this, this feeling about the, the kind of thusness of things and the isness of things and the way that each thing is its own self, its own separate self. And each person is such a wonderful example of a human being. Every one of you is just an amazing example, another example of another human being. And you're also a Buddha. And how could this be? It's just so amazing. And if you were any other way than how you are, each one of you, then you wouldn't really be Buddha because you wouldn't be yourself. And you need to be yourself in order to be Buddha. There's a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was not a Buddhist. He was a Christian, as you know. But um, I think it really gets at this. Uh, and I just love this sonnet. Uh, the first. As, as sonnets often are, there's eight lines and then there's six lines in a separate section. And the first eight lines, um, we can really relate to. This, the six lines at the end are his, um, are where the Christianity comes in, which I think is very beautiful, but it's, it's a new language coming in. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ, Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. So God sees Christ in every person's face. Um, and each person is being themselves and also being Christ in this case. So, uh, I just want to read this one part again. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying what I do is me, for that I came. And it deals out that being, it gives it away, it doesn't hang on to it. So, so we can explore the boundaries between the self and the, and the other, between what's inside and what's outside, or between, between this person and the universe, and between what's known and what's unknown. I was saying, 
somewhere. I think maybe in, I can't forget if it was in the writing group, but I want to tell again about a friend of mine who's a, a painter, an Indian man, um, who's a wonderful painter and a very um, enlightened being and a sort of Vedanta practitioner who uh, he, I visited him recently and I was looking at some of his paintings and he was talking to me about his painting process and about his life as an artist and he said that when he was um, a child he in India he wanted to know everything. He thought he would try to find out everything. And he knew that what he knew was like a little circle, but he was going to learn more and more. And so he would learn more and more and more, and the circle would get bigger, and the circle would get bigger, and he would know more and more, and the circle kept getting bigger. But he said he realized that no matter how big the circle got, what was outside the circle was still infinite. There was never anything less outside the circle, no matter how big the circle got of what was known. And then he realized that as an artist and as a spiritual searcher, that the place where he was most alive was on that circumference of the circle, that boundary between what he knew and what he didn't know. And I love that way of thinking about not knowing and the importance of not knowing but the importance of looking anyway and searching and um, it's a very alive place. The boundary, boundaries tend to be very alive places or borders, borderlines are, are very alive places and in nature it turns out there's something called the border effect uh, where between different habitats, where habitats meet, that border is an incredibly rich place for different forms of life. For example, the border between a forest and a meadow where you get birds up in the trees looking for prey running around down in the meadow, you get a kind of back and forth fertilization right at that borderline. Or tide pools, for example, where the land and the water meet, that border is rich with life. So borders are good places to be. So trusting our Buddha nature takes a kind of courage and takes a kind of stepping forth. And that's something my practice has helped me learn to do. I don't think of myself as a particularly courageous person, but uh, stepping forth, stepping off the hundred-foot pole, which is a Zen koan, it takes courage. You just go. You just jump in. And I wanted to tell you about uh, something that happened when I was practicing at Green Gulch. Uh, one of the ceremonies that we do is called the Shuso ceremony. And it, uh, when a person is, has been practicing for a while, um, they might be invited by their teacher to be the Shuso for a practice period. And Shuso means the head monk or the head student. And it's something you do one time only. It's a kind of rite of passage. 
And so the Shuso, during the practice period, gives a series of talks and also meets with all the students in the practice period and tries to help the teacher lead the practice period and tries to just step forward all the time. One thing, Shuso has to uh, leave at the beginning along with the teacher. So everybody is sitting there and then you just march out at the front of the line and just step forward. And this was very against my nature. I, um, I felt kind of like I was shy and I wanted to hang back, but no, I had to step forward. Well, and then the culmination of the whole thing is this thing called the Chuso ceremony. And that is when, uh, that's the very last thing of the whole practice period. And the person who is the Shuso sits uh, on a cushion, usually, um, on a little platform up at the front of the room, just like this. And everybody else is there, the, all the people in the practice period, but not only all the people in the practice period, all the former Shusos of Zen Center from years back are invited to come, and all the dignitaries and all the teachers. And everybody comes, and they're sitting there. And it's extremely formal and you memorize various lines that you recite at the beginning about how I'm just a mosquito biting an iron bull. That's one of the lines. But anyway, um, and you have this stick that you hold. You're given this stick, and um, you pound the stick when you speak. And, but the main thing that happens is that each person in the whole hall there asks you a question asks you a Dharma question and you have to answer it just like that and you haven't a clue what they're going to ask you. And it's not something you can study for, you know, you can't go study, prepare for this exam. The only way you prepare for it is by having lived your life and bringing yourself forward. So, um, even so, I was just terrified. I mean, the whole practice period was, I was kind of building up this panic. What was I going to do? And my fellow practitioners knew I was terrified. There was one guy who was very nice, and he, he said, well, he would help me prepare for it. And so he would leap out at me suddenly from <laughs> behind a doorway and say, what is Buddha? <laughs> and uh, things like that. But um, so <laughs> I tried to make up a few answers ahead of time, but <laughs> they didn't really stand me in very good stead when the time, moment came. So anyway, there I was sitting there, and um, then you know this amazing thing happened. It just I was there was so much adrenaline or something that I was just and not everything dropped away. I was just completely there in that moment, and um, there was no room to be nervous at all. I was just really there. And my knees didn't hurt. I was sitting in a good half-loaded position. Everything was just fine. And um, I didn't even, and I had my stick, and somebody would say, what is Buddha? And I would say whatever I said, and I'm not even going to try to tell you who Buddha or what Buddha is right now, but I pounded this, I said something, pounded the stick, and it was fine. And it all went really Fine. There was not. There, there's no failing. You can't do it wrong anyway. So it was a, a wonderful practice in realizing that all I could do was just be myself, and that's what I love about other Shuso ceremonies that I've gone to is that 
you see this person up there and that's what they're doing. They're being themselves. They're completely offering themselves, totally. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that my Dharma practice has helped me with. And we can't do this alone. That's an important thing. We can't do any of this alone. We need each other. And as I was saying in our workshop, you know, we can't even, we don't even learn to talk alone. Our brains don't develop in order to be able to talk if we're alone. We need other people to be who we are, to have our brains work, to be able to speak. And Creativity and dharma are both part of that process of doing it with each other. We're always doing it with each other. It's a great big collaborative project. And what we want is to be part of something larger than ourselves. And we're all making up that universe and we're all part of this big net of Indra together. And we're, we're connected whether we like it or not. If we try not to be connected, we run into a lot of trouble um, because we really, we just can't do it that way. We can't isolate ourselves. People try sometimes and sometimes you need to have space around you and you need to not be in the big melee all the time and you need solitude and you need to be a hermit for a while. But even so, even if you're a hermit, somebody else maybe helped you help to support you, found a place for you to go, be quiet in the woods, you're still not doing it alone. One of the ways that I have really learned about doing things together is through, through activism in the world, too. And I wanted to tell you about uh, one of my teachers who didn't know she was my teacher, but um, that was a woman named Fanny Lou Hamer. And when I was, just when I graduated from college in 1964, through an accident of timing and history, kind of like Wes was talking about his accidents of timing in Miami too, we, our lives just happen when they happen. And I happened to be born and happened to be in a situation where I was able to go to the so-called Mississippi Freedom Summer and work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi when I was 21 years old. And it was one of the great blessings of my life that I was, had that opportunity. Um, I still am just incredibly grateful for what I learned there. And I was given so much by being able to be there and um, by participating with these people. Um, the, black people in Mississippi who started this, this movement down there and started, the, who were working on voter registration were so courageous and I hadn't a clue. That was the thing that was so, I mean, I, my heart was in the right place and I wanted to go there, but I was stunned by the kind of suffering they had faced and the impediments and the obstacles and by the courage that they had. And Fannie Lou Hamer was one of the people who particularly impressed me. She was an example of this. And uh, she was a woman who was, um, uh, her family were cotton pickers on a plantation. 
and uh, she was one of she went to try and register to vote and uh, was or maybe it was her husband who at one point who tried to register to vote and was um, beaten and imprisoned and um, she too was beaten and imprisoned at various times for trying to register to vote and she she learned to read and write late in her life she was very poor she just she just knew that she wasn't going to stand for it she was going to step forth and speak her dharma and she was an inspiration to everybody and she had a voice you could not believe and her song and we you know we all sang a lot and, and gave people courage and her song really was her kind of signature song was this little light of mine i'm going to let it shine and for me hearing her sing that song was was just an amazing feeling and i um also it was very humbling because i knew i was there for one summer then i went back to my life i wrote about it and talked about it but i was back home safe and sound in cambridge massachusetts and those people down there were not safe and sound and they were still doing the work and still carrying on and they were doing that also within a spiritual framework it wasn't buddhism it was christianity but the the church and the like the song this little light of mine is basically a an old gospel song um so so this was a, a union of of uh, spiritual and um, social, you could say political, but activism that was really spiritually based as well. And uh, it, was, it was a very important thing for me to also feel how, how wonderful it is to be a part of something bigger than yourself, where you don't, you don't hold back and you just do what you can to be a part of it. And that isn't happening right now, but you know, if there are there are other ways that we can all find of joining up with something really inspiring, giving ourselves, finding people who have great courage, who are working for for change, who are stepping forward to speak their dharma, and uh, we can we can be doing that too. So I was lucky to be in that get to do it in that way, but there are lots of other opportunities that come along. And sometimes it's less dramatic than other times, but it doesn't make it less meaningful. Uh, I, I wanted to, for, for a long time I was editing Turning Wheel, the magazine of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and I was also writing, and in my writing life I, I have written a lot of fiction and short stories, and I wrote this book called The Life and Letters of Tofu Roshi that came out a long time ago now. Seems like another life, another person who did that, um, which was a humor book about an imaginary Zen master. And then I, in more recent years, I've been writing uh, essays mostly. But um, I've always written, and I've always wondered is this, is this useful? You know, why am I really doing this? What, what good is it doing anybody? 
Is that, uh, am I hearing a ring or is that, am I imagining? Is it okay? Um, but one time when, when I was editing Turning Wheel, which was a wonderful job for me, I really appreciated that job. And, and Turning Wheel is, is a magazine devoted to talking about uh, socially engaged Buddhism and how does Dharma and social change come together. So I interviewed Mayumi Oda, a great Buddhist activist <laughs> for Turning Wheel. And I don't know if I'd ever met you before that, Mayumi, but anyway, um, that was the conversation that she referred to the other night when, when she, and she told me about this moment, this January 2nd, when she was sitting there and this voice came to her saying, stop the plutonium. And I was so inspired. And I remembered asking her, well, what about, what about art? What about writing and painting? Because she wasn't doing much right then because she was so working so hard on the um, Rainbow Serpent project. And I said, well, but is it, is it okay to write? I want to be a writer too. And I just, I want to write these short stories and things. Is that okay? And she said, I don't know if you remember this, but you said to me, well, of course, we need art to soften our hearts. We need art to keep people's hearts open and soft. And I've always been so grateful to you for saying that to me. And I've thought of it many times. And I offer it to you. It comes from Mayumi via me. We do need art to keep our hearts soft. And as I also quoted to my writing group, uh, I think this is Grace Paley, the world is a better place for having its stories told. So those stories may come in the form of paintings. They may come in all different forms. They may come in the form of interviews on the radio. They may come in all kinds of forms. And but we need to hear those stories and we need to hear each other. And something else that has been really meaningful for me is the opportunity to work with people as an editor, really, um, to, because I've, I've been lucky to help people tell their stories. And that is also very, makes me feel really good. There are a couple of people, well, one person I've worked with a lot is a man named Jarvis J. Masters, who's a prisoner on death row at San Quentin. And he's become a Buddhist, and he is an amazing writer. And I have worked with him. I started working with him because he sent some things to Turning Wheel. And then I began visiting him and worked with him very intensely to help him finish a book, which he already has one book out, which I didn't work on, which is very good. I recommend it to you. It's called Finding Freedom, Writings from Death Row. And now he has a second book that he just got a book contract on the book that I helped him with, which is about his childhood and early life before San Quentin. And this is a, an example of a story that needs to be told. And, and it's when you hear about his life, you see that it would be a miracle if he wasn't in San Quentin. And in fact, 
in his case, he may get out, he may get off death row, which he does not belong on. He came into San Quentin for armed robbery, which he did indeed do, and that was over 20 years ago. And then there was a murder of a guard in the prison while he was there. He was locked in a cell when the guard was murdered, but he was in the gang, the prison gang, that did murder the guard. And three men were convicted of that murder. One of them was Jarvis, who was convicted of sharpening the murder weapon. Uh, and that the other two were given life without parole, and Jarvis was given the death penalty through the strange vagaries and inconsistencies of our legal system. And in fact, he didn't, he didn't do what he was charged with doing, and there were many people who snitched on him, and some of that evidence is coming out. That's a whole complicated story, which I won't get into. But anyway, I truly believe that he is not guilty of what he was found guilty of, and um, he's beginning to get some good hearings, and maybe he'll get out. But anyway, helping him tell his story or encouraging him, just being, being an ear for him and an encourager for him felt really good to me, too. It felt like I was joining him in his creativity in some sense. Not that I'm taking any credit for what he did, but just that I am always um, noticing how wonderful it is to really share with each other what it is that we're trying to do. And we've been doing some of that in the writing group, where we're kind of writing off each other's words and things, so that uh, we, can, we can begin to let go of some of our ownership of the words, or just to help them come, come through us however they come through us, or help, let us help each other get the words out, or get the stories out. And so, and Jarvis really needed encouragement because of where he is, and, and the difficulties he's been facing. So it felt good to be able to encourage him and to be getting excited about what he, his, the story he was telling and um, the way he... I'll just tell you what, one example of the kind of thing that he was writing about is um, he was in various reform schools, partly at first because he was just in foster homes, not because he did anything bad, but because he came, became a ward of the state and he was in this very military type of school where um, the counselors uh, would actually um, take on different boys as their protégés and make them fight. And they would get all the boys to stand in a circle, and then two would have to go into the middle and fight. And the counselors would bet on their boy. And um, this was the kind of this was supposed to help somebody learn how to be a citizen of our society? No. So people need to know that this kind of thing happens to children, you know, in our educational system. This was a part of our educational system. So these stories need to be told. So all of us who are helping to tell those stories are doing a service. And um, there are so many stories that are valuable, and they don't just have to be stories of outrageous abuse, obviously. They can be there, there are all kinds of stories that we need to hear about the environment, about inspiring wonderful things that happen to give us hope. So let's just keep telling our stories.
So Dharma and creativity have a lot of, there are a lot of qualities that um, they both need. They both need a kind of self-discipline. We need to just bring ourselves to it and just, just do it without a lot of, well, we don't need to, it's okay if we don't, but <laughs> we can, if we, if we want to, um, deepen our practice or deepen our creative offering, um, it helps to, to just bring yourself to it without questioning it or thinking about it too hard. Just, just go ahead and show up. It's kind of like a showing up type of a thing. Show up for your painting, show up for your writing, show up for your practice, and see what happens. And um, just love yourself for doing it. And uh, I was so helped myself this morning by Wes's meditation when he was leading us and reminding us just uh, no blame, no blame, no blame. You just keep showing up for yourself. Another quality that they both um, have or benefit from or whatever is what in, in it's one of the um, six paramitas in Buddhism, which is virya, is the Sanskrit word, and uh, it can be translated different ways, but one way is enthusiastic energy. Or it's a, just a kind of uh, vigor. I'm alive! Yes, I'm alive! That feeling of just realizing the amazing fact of your human birth, that here you are, you're alive, you have this blood pulsing through your body. Wow! What do, what do you get to do with that? Whatever you want, but you've got this virya. You can really appreciate it and put it where you want to put it and let it grow. And another thing is a kind of faith. Well, we don't really use the word faith that much in Buddhism, but I think there is a faith that, that's a, like a faith in your Buddha nature, just a faith that, that you're doing what you need to be doing, you're the person you need to be, and to just let yourself be held by that faith and trust yourself, really trust yourself. There's a teacher, um, Wendy Egyoku Nakao, who's a um, Zen teacher, and that I think she is currently still the director of the Zen Center of Los Angeles. Um, and she, you know, she came as a woman into a very, what was a very male tradition and male practice, and a wonderful men teachers, but they were men. Um, and she was the first woman who really ha had leadership in that particular sangha. Her teacher was Maizumi Roshi and also Bernie Glassman, uh, who are wonderful Zen teachers. Uh, but she has come forward really as a um, practitioner of being very much ex 
expressing herself as a woman and uh, from the heart. And one of her main things that she says is, just trust yourself, just trust yourself, over and over again. It's a wonderful teaching. So, I just have a couple more things to say. Um, what I find helpful in my longing and my questioning of myself and my loneliness is that I do, I do remind myself that there's something bigger than me and I like to think of it as God or it could be the universe. Um, I really, I think of God as a sort of nickname for the universe. It's just shorter, but it's like there's something I can address myself to and I can say, please help me sometimes. I want to say that. And I can ask God or the universe, is this what you want me to be doing now? And sometimes I ask myself that question and it really helps me. Is this really what God wants me to be doing right now? Or maybe I, maybe I don't really, maybe God doesn't want me to answer this email. I don't think I will. <laughs> so you can kind of refer yourself to God or Tara. You could find whoever you want and, and let people know that that's why you're not able to meet them for lunch. It's not that you don't want her, but Tara won't let you today. Um, so I, I, I wanted to just, oh, to say that, that um, really what we want to do is what is most, most important, and, and we're exploring what it means to be a human being, and, and we don't have that much time here, but we have in another way, as I've been saying, all the time in the world, we have all the time that we have, and so, in each moment, we can really try to do what is the most important thing for us to be doing. And um, so I want to quote a friend of mine named Grace Damon, who is a woman who uh, lives at Green Gulch, and she, she, I've been in a Dharma group with her for many years, and she was in a terrible car accident uh, in May on the Golden Gate Bridge, a head-on collision. She was in a coma for months. It was unclear whether she would live. Then it became clear that she would live, but it was unclear whether she was still in a coma, and it was unclear whether her brain was going to be able to function or not. There was bleeding in the brain. Now, months later, she is coming out of it. She's getting better. She is, her spirit is coming forward. It's just incredible. She, she broke practically every bone in her body, and she had many operations on her bones, and she's in a wheelchair um, and having physical therapy, but she's, she is full of life, and she is talking now. She began talking slowly, but she's talking, she's singing, she's visiting with her family, and there's a, a website that has postings of news about her that I get, and um, so Somebody asked her, well, what, what's your advice as you're coming out of this coma? And, and 
coming back to life right now. What, what, do you want to tell, what do you want people to know? And she said, um, well, these are the important things that I've learned here in the hospital. Avoid pureed foods. <laughs> if you've never been married, get married. If you want to get divorced, get divorced. <laughs> but most of all, do what you care about doing. So those were Grace's bits of advice. Um, so I want to finish with telling you uh, about a card that I have on my altar at home that helps me with my writing practice and brings to it together with my Buddhist practice. And I have this card on my altar and I uh, say this sometimes when I sit down to write. And you might invent such a thing yourself, but this is what mine says. In gratitude for the gifts I've been given, the gifts of time, quiet, a desktop, and the desire to create, I vow to give it all away. By, by the way, desktop, I didn't mean a desktop computer, I just meant a table. <laughs> um, I just really these gifts do not belong to me any more than milkweed fluff belongs to milkweed. Whatever merit there may be in my struggle to write and in my writing, I dedicate that merit to all beings. So I try to get out of my way and just have it be an offering. And now what I'd like to do to end is to ask you all to help me sing with me this little light of mine. So we can all let our lights shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All over Spirit Rock. All over Spirit Rock, I'm gonna let it shine. All over Spirit Rock, I'm gonna let it shine. All over Spirit Rock, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Last verse. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Thank you.
think I was supposed to ring the bell after we sit for a few minutes instead of before, but in the Zen tradition, I'm doing it at both ends. <laughs> I'll ring it again in a mi couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.